Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's where W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. With an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between, Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of May, St. Evans is supporting Labor Behind the Label, an anti-sweatshop campaign working to improve conditions and empower workers in the global garment industry. 
New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that has had, oh my gosh, the craziest week. First, our well broke. You know, we live out in the country, so our water comes from a well. And so we didn't have water for four days. I felt so gross. My skin is so broken out. Anyway, not a major problem now. It's fixed. Um, Then our internet was down for several days, uh, which is a real crisis for both of us. Dustin works remotely. I solely exist on the internet now. Um, Really, really stressful week. Definitely a truly cottagecore moment out here in bird in hand, Pennsylvania. So far, everything seems to be fixed. The internet's still a little dodgy, but I'm hoping for the best. (laughs) I'm your host, Amanda, and I promise I've taken a shower. This is episode 79. And it's another blog crossover episode. Last week, the CloseHorse.World team shared personal essays about our own experiences with work. I took on the unemployment system. Haley wrote about how she refuses to pay her dues. Carrie broke down the failings of the annual performance review, a cause near and dear to my heart as a manager who's had to write and conduct way too many pointless corporate performance reviews. And Meg talked about the fallacy of your work is family and how that leads to overworking and burnout. I urge all of you to read the essays. You can find them at closehorse.world before you listen to our conversations. I'm going to put them in the show notes so you don't even have to type in closehorse.world. But I think reading the essays will make this episode even more enjoyable. Before we jump into these scintillating conversations, I just want to announce that while the blog, CloseHorse.World, will be moving into personal style month for June, I'll still be over here on the podcast continuing the conversations about labor and our experiences in the workplace. There's just too much to talk about. Fortunately, I can do that because while CloseHorse.World is a team of people, including myself, CloseHorse, the podcast, is literally just me with some audio support from Dustin. So I, you know, I do all of the research, the correspondence, writing, recording, editing, and so on. So if I want to continue talking about labor, well, I can because I'm in charge around here. CloseHorse is me. Why am I telling you all of this? Because I want you to continue sending me your work stories. I know, based on conversations I've been having on Instagram, that many of you 
have experiences to share. So send them my way and I'll be sharing them throughout the month. You can send me an email, you can call the Close Horse Hotline, or you can record a voice memo on your phone or computer and send it via email. That's a great option if your story is a little bit longer than say two or three minutes. You can find my email address and the hotline number in the show notes. And please do not send your story via Instagram DM because you know what? I'm totally going to lose it and your story deserves better than that. All right, well, let's jump into our conversations. First up is Haley and Carrie. It turns out that rejecting the notion of paying your dues is a perfect pairing with a takedown of performance reviews. I know, right? It does make sense. So let's get into it. Hi, everyone. I'm Carrie, executive editor of CloseHorse.World, and I'm back with Haley, our design systems lead, to talk about the essays that we each wrote and published this week under the theme Work Life. Haley, once again, I have a bunch of questions for you after reading your essay, and I'm excited to chat with you again. I'm super excited as well to chat with you about your essay and my essay. Um, We come from, like we talked about in the previous podcast, we talk, we come from like very different places in our career, but within kind of similar lines. Um, Mm -hmm. And I really loved reading your article because as we'll discuss later, um, what you're talking about in your article, I haven't ever had the opportunity to even have, (laughs) um, which causes a whole different set of issues. So um, yeah, I'm definitely excited to kind of get digging into these. Yeah, me too. I mean, as, as usual, um, your essay starts off with a really strong point of view that I um, find unconventional and without giving anything away, um, because it's right in your title, you, uh, your essay is called, I refuse to pay my dues. And the stance obviously rejects a conventional wisdom of most, most career paths. And This convention is that you have to go through a difficult and poorly paid or unpaid apprenticeship before you can expect to start making money and getting promotions. And I think we both have experienced that this is particularly true of creative careers um, and your field in particular, graphic design. And I wonder why you think that is. Yeah, I think that people feel like creatives enjoy what they do, so they need to be punished for it because they all <laughs> don't enjoy their jobs. Um, I don't know. I like don't know what else it could be. I mean, there's also like um, in a creative career, it's kind of just generally more competitive, and like it's easier to exploit people in ways because one of the biggest things that every creative who has ever been a creative is like do it for the exposure, right? Mm -hmm. And like, Mm -hmm. like, you don't ask an accountant or a bus driver, or like, you don't ask those people to do a job for free for exposure, because that makes no sense. Um, I mean, I guess you could ask accounting, I don't know much about accounting, Um, or even like a lawyer, you don't ask a lawyer to do free work for exposure, like you just you don't ask any of these other, I guess, like, standard professions for the idea of like doing something for free for exposure. And with creative professions, I think another thing is to get a job, to get in the door, you have to have portfolio work and companies exploit that because Mm -hmm. student work often isn't good enough to get you into your first role. Um, And so you need to like get that free internship so you can work on paid client stuff. So you have real work 
quote unquote, in your portfolio, even though student projects, at least in my experience, my student projects were way more thought out than my projects I actually did at my internships. It's really interesting because you're right. I mean, creativity is, it's a more um, intangible service. Um, Whereas accounting and, you know, being a lawyer, I suppose like you, you know, you're delivering something that has some clear expectations. So it's like you want to develop this portfolio that that proves that you can deliver and you need opportunities to do that first. Um, But it is still, despite being intangible, it is a real it is a real service. Right. And and a valuable one. It's valuable. And I think it's also that like, I remember in school having people be like, Oh, but don't you like this? And I'm like, yes, but like, I expect to get paid for work I should get paid for. Like, just because I like it doesn't mean I like, just want to give it away for free. And I'm even like, I haven't experienced it a ton with now that I sew, but sewing is a pretty uh, infamous hobby for people trying to get you to do stuff for them unpaid. Oh my god! Um, and and yeah, I just like yeah. I don't know. I, I talked about this in my creativity and capital essay, and I think it's just the de- devaluation of creativity. Even though creativity runs the world, and everybody would be pretty miserable without it, um, but people yeah. just don't think like that. You know, you mentioned in your essay that while you were in school, you heard plenty of tales from teachers about their experiences paying their dues and the workplace abuse they endured. And to you, these sounded like war stories and this that this generation, you know, wears those stories like a badge of honor. Do you have any theories why your teachers and mentors look back on paying their dues as an honorable rite of passage and why your class, um, your graduating class, saw it differently? I think it's a complete generational difference. Um, So my class, uh, we are the last year of the millennial, so we were born in 95 and 96. Um, Most of my peers, I of course had peers that were older, Um, and I guess probably younger, but I'm not as aware of those. Um, but a lot of us like had our coming of years during 2008 financial crisis. So I was 12, I think 12 or 13 during that crisis. And that Mm -hmm. I feel like is when you really start to form your views on like money and jobs, because at least in Colorado at 12 to 13, you were maybe looking at your first job at 14 because legally in Colorado, you can start working at 14, um, which Mm -hmm. I found out is just younger than everybody else. When I talk to like my peers who grew up in Washington, I guess it's like not as likely for a 14 year old to be working. Um, but I think what happened in the 2008 financial crisis is we watched a lot of our parents who were at jobs that they had been at for years and years, if not decades and companies that they were loyal to and they felt were loyal to them. We watched those companies lay them off without like, thoughts about them without thinking about them as people, how it impact them or anything like that. Um, And we're just, I think it's that there was a time where companies were better at faking caring about Hmm. their employees. Like, I don't think that my parents' companies cared about them any more than my companies do, but I think we have a generation like difference in that delusion. Um, (laughs) Because like, I, uh, everywhere I've ever worked, I just assume they don't give a shit about me. And because of that, I'm not going to give a shit or give them any loyalty either. Uh, because to me, it's a two-way street. And I feel like a lot of older generations are really stuck in the way of like, be loyal to your employer and they'll treat you well. And it's kind of like, well, be loyal to your employer 
and they'll still treat you like garbage. So um, there's just, there's no benefit to it. Uh, but even yeah. when you look about like the like abolishment of like pensions, like the idea that your company, if you worked there long enough, would like pay you after you retired is gone. Yeah. Um, and like that would be like a good way to encourage loyalty to a company. Um, like all of these long term benefits are pretty much gone, except for maybe like 401k contributions that take like three years to be fully vested or sabbaticals and stuff like that. So like these long term benefits are gone. Companies have made it apparent they don't care. Even just when you think about like recruiting, um, now mm-hmm. companies ghost their pr- prospective employers. They treat them like garbage. Or, I mean, employees like like the recruiting process now is also really brutal for a worker where it might have been a little bit different back in the day. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about what it takes to be able to do an unpaid internship or a low paying internship. And, you know, it, it means that you have some kind of financial support or at least not a ton of debt that you have to start paying when you graduate. So I kind of wonder if the teachers, you know, in of your school who maybe got their start in the late 70s through the early 90s, maybe it was financially possible at that time to do it because tuition you know, while still expensive, hadn't blown up exponentially the way it it has in just the last decade. And, you know, I'm also thinking a bit about technology changes and in graphic design specifically, maybe early on, there was a lot of like pre-production grunt work, you know, that an intern could do. Whereas now, like you'll walk into a job with a lot of know-how and an ability from a technical point of view, to create client-ready work. Um, maybe some of the people who are hiring you don't even have the skills that you have. Yeah. So it's like you can walk in and create stuff that the company can immediately make money off of, and that may not have been true of interns, you know, back when back when your teachers were starting out. Yeah, but even, even so, like, that grunt work still made companies money. Like, you had to have somebody running... Um, cause like I, I come from a actually traditional print background. My first internship was in print. Um, you had to have somebody like producing and kerning and like doing all of these production things anyway. And I just, mm-hmm. I think also, I think that graphic design at least like has kind of fallen off of its pedestal that mm-hmm. it was on because of the technology you talked about. Like now anybody can buy a subscription to illustrator and kind of call themselves a graphic designer. Um, and I think that's great. Uh, I think we've seen this really big democratizing of graphic design because before you needed to have all this expensive printing equipment and you had to have the capabilities to be able to draw in gouache, which is not a forgiving substance for anybody who's used it. I love gouache personally, but a, yeah, lot, me of, too. a lot of people don't. Um, <laughs> and talking to like some, some of my friends in college, they would start doing freelance and making money off of it as early as their sophomore year of college. Um, so I think that also maybe allowed them to say like no to unpaid internships is because they were making money anyway with their own yeah. clients, much yeah. to I'm sure these agencies dis- dismay because it's not like my friends were charging enough for their work. Yeah. But there's a, a challenge of that hierarchy of having to work through a company in order to get clients. You, ca- you can if you have the software and, you know, do your own networking, you can get a start yeah. on your own. You know, in your essay, you talked about 
going to a mentor for advice about getting a raise. And it sounds like that person told you that you weren't ready for it and that you should consider yourself lucky for having the job and the pay that you already have um, or had. And you ignored this person, which I found impressive. Um, what gave you the confidence to push forward and make the case for your pay increase? Um, well, this this mentor, it was kind of like a weird kind of sticky situation in general because to my face, they would tell me I was ready. Like it, it, or they would very subtly tell me I wasn't ready. Mm. Um, but they would tell me that they were advocating for me and supporting me. And I would kind of hear whispers from my other coworkers who were in those meetings that they weren't. Mm. Um, because they, they had a very different view on professionality than I do. They believe that you like show up to an office, you pretend your life is like perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, you don't ever complain. You don't ever, Oh God forbid you ever mention that you go to therapy. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, just kind of that really old school mentality about the office. And for me, um, I didn't subscribe to that. And I think like, they just like fundamentally disagreed, even though I will say I hit my deadlines more than they did. So, um, and to me at the end of the day, what comes down to job is do you do your work well and detail oriented and do you hit your deadlines? And if the answer is yes, like you're probably doing pretty well. And for me on top of it, I was taking on lots of additional responsibilities. I think what made me confident is looking a at average industry pay and knowing I was below it. Mm -hmm. I had also just taken on a ton of extra responsibility at this point. I was training interns and doing things like that. And that is no longer the definition of a junior graphic designer by the time you are training people. Sure. And so I just, I don't know. I think, I think it's that in that conversation, quite frankly, I just lost a lot of respect for that person because it was very clearly a conversation of like things sucked more for me. So you should like count yourself lucky. And I'm like, well, you should set up for yourself back then. And this isn't my problem that you didn't. But so for me, I was like, I know I deserve this. I I knew I earned it. I know I'm a good worker. Uh, I work hard. I am innovative. I'm efficient. Um, and a lot of employees forget it costs a good amount of money to replace you. Mm -hmm. It costs sometimes as much as like 10 grand to replace an employee. Wow. And that doesn't even really necessarily count for the loss of productivity while you're trying to fill that gap. Um, so it's expensive to lose an employee. Um, And I think, like, you can kind of work that to your favor. Like, definitely when I just decided to do it anyway and ignore him, I, like, went to my boss and I was basically like, it'll cost you this much to replace me. I'm only asking for this much of a raise. Like, your move. You did your homework. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, as you know, my, my essay is about performance reviews. And I was inspired to write it because I had the opportunity to eavesdrop on a friend's mid-year performance review with her boss, um, which was happening on Zoom. And I witnessed how horribly this manager handled that conversation. And it made me wonder if performance reviews should be canceled. So I'm curious, and it, it doesn't sound like it, but did your request for a pay increase happen in the context of a performance review? No, the um, bane of my existence at my current workplace is there is no formal performance review, Wow, um, which leaves it completely on the employee to ask for raises. And you have to hope you get a manager that's really good at advocating for you. I was just like bringing this up in our casual one-on-ones. And I was like, I will say like, I'm probably not always the most tactful um, about it. um, But I was basically like, hey, I need a raise if you want to keep me. Like, um, and I also... 
um, I, I don't want to say I was like naggy about it, but like I was sort of naggy about it. Cause it's that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Um, and then also like, I think of working at a company and kind of these negotiations, the way you would maybe work in a relationship. Like I think about in my teenage years, how all of my friends would be mad at their boyfriends, but then tell everybody, but their boyfriends, why they were mad at them. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, I think Mm -hmm. about like my relationship at a company similar where like, if they don't know I'm frustrated, how can I expect them to fix it? Um, so I've always been kind of one to like air my frustrations with my pay or my title or what have you, uh, because I'm kind of like, well, if I don't communicate to them, they can't even make a step to fix it. And like going and getting a job is a lot of work, like a new one. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I really, I like read your essay and I, I get the feeling about like pointless performance reviews, but I'm at a company that there is a real lack in equity because there mm-hmm. is no space to bring these up. So it's primarily men getting raises. Um, it's mm-hmm. primarily like people who are willing to like go and just like point blank, bring it up. And like, that's like a pretty hard thing to do. And I think the benefit of a performance review is it gives an employee who's maybe a little less outspoken a space to ask for these things. You are right. Um, And I think it is a lot harder to advocate for yourself out of the blue. I mean, kudos to you for your, for kind of keeping tabs on your own performance, doing your homework about um, what the market value is for what you're doing. And also knowing more about the employment landscape and how much it costs um, for companies to find new hires. Um, and also the loss of productivity and training. Those are all really solid points that I think people don't always think about. You know, one of my most distinctive memories as a manager was the first time an employee came to me and asked for a raise. And she did it at her mid-year performance review. And I honestly wasn't prepared. Um, I absolutely love this person and we're still close friends. And I thought she deserved the raise. But I suggested that we use the rest of the year to build her case for it. And she didn't let me off the hook and (laughs) told me that if I thought she deserved the promotion, I should start advocating for it mid-year when the budget is still open, which she's absolutely right. I mean, at the end of the year, budgets are already closed. Um, promotions are decided. It's the wrong time to start asking. Um, you, ha- you have to advocate for yourself earlier in the year. Um, so it was embarrassing because she knew the game better than I did. And... I think the crux of the matter was that I kind of jumped over the editorial apprenticeship and I wasn't really in touch with how long it can take to get through all of these micro promotions um, before you're finally an editor. I think it's similar in graphic design, but in editorial, you start out as an editorial assistant and then an assistant editor and then an associate editor. Like there, there are just like so many little micro promotions and little raises before you're an editor. So if you're really managing your career, you try to get through those quickly. You know, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't wait yeah. around. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh- And yeah, you know, it's not like upper management was telling us, you know, me, middle managers, how to promote our employees. Mm -hmm. And I think the truth is that in publishing, you sort of need these tiers of support and there just isn't enough room in the company structure and budget for everyone to keep growing. Um, So it's 
it is really up to entry level staff to push for promotions and raises and, you know, possibly leave the company if they aren't making progress. Right. And I mean, I think like the savviest entry level people are who get promoted the quickest. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say I definitely, if it wasn't for the pandemic, I would have definitely been promoted earlier than I ended up being because of the pandemic. They froze all promotions. It was a really frustrating experience, actually, because I had started advocating for a raise in promotion for myself. And I believe it was September of 2019 Mm -hmm. um, to try to get in on. We did every three months at my work. So I was trying to get into the January cycle Mm -hmm. um, because I had been hired on January of the previous year. So I was like, one year, get a raise, get a promotion. You know, Mm -hmm. it's pretty it's pretty normal in early entry level careers to do that. Um, you shouldn't be waiting these long stretches of time to get promotions. And then basically what happened is they announced that they were raising all the senior designers to various director and manager titles. And I wasn't Mm -hmm. getting any sort of raise in promotion. I was told Mm -hmm. by my boss that like I would be in the next round. Uh, he put in my, I guess like application for promotion, whatever the paperwork for it. Uh, on the beginning of March and by mid-March we had the pandemic and we froze all promotions and raises. So I was penalized by having a boss that did not know how to work the system because obviously like my promotion was much less than everybody else's. And so it would have been easier to get that in before. I don't know. And just some of those senior level people had also had promotions within the last year. And that's like a really fast promotion. Um, and so I just found it incredibly frustrating, um, And I think it's honestly quite nonsense. Um, And my company, um, not to like harp too bad on them, but my company (laughs) has been making killer profits throughout the whole pandemic, like most companies. And so there was no justification for freezing raises and promotions other than for them to make more money. That's so frustrating, especially because you're you're right, your raise compared to um, leveling up a bunch of more senior people, like wouldn't have cost as much, but it means a lot to you. And yeah. yeah, So that's really frustrating. And during that time in my career, I had to learn to separate my value from my career. I had from that, like I had put a lot of value, like self worth into my career. And, uh, I spiraled pretty bad when that promotion, when promotions got froze. Um, Mm -hmm. I felt pretty worthless. I felt pretty shitty. Um, And so like the past year, I've been really working on making sure my career does not add to my value as a person, Um, Mm -hmm. like personally, I guess. Um, And I think that has been really beneficial because I just, I don't know how much more relaxed at work. I put a lot less pressure on myself. Um, But yeah, it was a, it was really brutal. And like going back to kind of the performance review thing, when I had asked my boss for a performance review, he asked me how I should, how he should structure it. And I was kind of like, (laughs) um, well, that's your job. (laughs) Um, I'm 22 years old, or I guess I was 23, but like, I'm like you, you like at the very least, if you don't know how to structure it, like Google it when I leave, like there are plenty of online resources to tell you how to give an employee a performance review. And so then I like structured my own performance review Uh, For my performance review, he, like, booked a room. It, like, felt kind of vaguely official, but I knew it was totally not official. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I like went into this room and he was basically like, so tell me about how you think you're performing. And I'm like, well, if you're going to leave that up to me, I'm going to tell you a whole lot of pros and maybe one con. Nice. <laughs> like, yeah. and so that's what I went in and did. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was like such a waste of my time. Um, and he like also asked, he's like, do you want me to bring in like the senior designers to like critique your work? And I'm like, that's not what yeah. a performance review is. No, <laughs> like, no, 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 that's different. <laughs> uh, that's very different. I don't know. It was just, it was like the most flabbergasting. And it was in that moment that I realized that most managers have no idea what they're doing um, because they're not given enough training on to like how to do their job. And like in my company's case, we're still in this weird scrappy startup mindset, even though our corporation of like 1500 people um, and so they just like, don't have these structures in and they're kind of, they're, they're experiencing a lot of growing pains because of it. And they're experiencing their top talent turning over. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it does, you're making a good case for performance reviews. Whereas I think in my essay, given, you know, that I was watching the specific experience of a, of a friend, it made me reflect on how harmful they can be. Um, but I, you know, when you describe the context that you're working in and <laughs> particularly dealing with a boss who doesn't even know how to do it, I, I, I can start to appreciate the HR uh, structure and formality of it. I've always worked in a place where there were performance reviews, so I don't know what it's like not to have them. Um, and ideally, it's a transparent process where managers and employees can get on the same page and potentially map out the next step of an employee's career. But often, I think the reality is that the performance review process is just only as good as the people conducting it. And you're right, managers generally aren't trained to handle those conversations well, and neither are the employees. And so when I talk about performance reviews being canceled, what I'm really objecting to is the performance of an HR procedural where everyone just wants to get the documentation done and move on. And I really wish the emphasis was on actually communicating with each other. As I've discussed, like I've had to kind of basically performance review myself during one-on-ones with bosses. And mm -hmm. it's just not ideal. And I, I agree that kind of nobody's trained to do it well. Like I, I'm almost like more people could go through to design school because if there's one thing I can do, it's take critique. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I could also give critique. Like part of design school, honestly, is like putting your work on a board next to everybody else, feeling super shitty about your work and then having people critique your work. And depending on the design school, mine, I was lucky, like babied us, I guess. But a lot of design schools, they'll critique your work until you cry while you're up there. And they Jesus. just like, they, which is like, I think is too far, but they really yeah. teach you to like remove yourself from your work. Um, hmm. And that's like part of that process is like you slowly learn to become like more hardened and bitter. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I, I think like not enough people experience critiqued. Because uh, like for me, when I have gotten feedback that like maybe I'm too harsh or like, I just like, I don't take it personally yeah. Um, because I have been through design school and like my work isn't personal work. Um, it's not a personal attack on my work. If somebody doesn't like it, I can disagree with them. But at the end of the day, if they're the stakeholder, it's their call. And like, it doesn't like, it doesn't reflect on anything I'm doing personally. Um, yeah. and I just, yeah, I don't know. I, I really feel like they're just like, it should be like a requirement in high school or maybe not high school because everyone's self-esteem is a mess, but like in <laughs> college or something, 
uh, or, or when you enter the workforce, like that you need to like go through critique school. Um, I think you're right. Of how to do constructive feedback. Cause like there's the whole, um, I think they call it a compliment mm-hmm. sandwich where you start with a compliment <laughs> and then you like kind of say all your negative things and then you end with a compliment. Yeah. Um, and like, I, I don't know, like, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty good at even like navigating because of my experience being critiqued in class. Like, I remember in college crying and crying and crying some days after critique because um, I had just had my work work mm-hmm. ripped apart. But I, I feel pretty hard at this point. Like at this point, I'm kind of like, well, like you just like don't like my personality and that's fine. That's not a reflection on me necessarily. Um, and it's not necessarily a poor reflection on them. Like it's just, it's fine. Not everything works. And I feel like as a result, I've also learned how to give feedback to people Um, like negative feedback to people in a way that is very um, palatable. Um, And so I don't know, I think, I don't know, we just don't learn how to communicate ever. I think you're right. I think there's, there are a lot of ways um, in which we can go through school without, you know, you get grades, but that's not the same thing as getting feedback the way you described. And it really is critical in managing people. And it's something that Um, I lacked training in when I first started managing people, you know, delegating, giving feedback, receiving feedback, giving credit, all of that um, was kind of terrifying. And, you know, when people become managers, they're promoted into that role because they're good at what they do. But it doesn't mean that they know how to mentor others or manage a process. Those are totally separate skills. And, you know, fortunately, I worked for a large company that provided management training, and I really ate that up with a spoon. I just really enjoyed that. Um, but, you know, you're, you're wise to approach your manager with a bit of detachment emotionally um, and also some empathy because, you know, he's supposed to look like he knows what he's doing, but he's just a person. He has knowledge gaps and insecurities like everyone else. And your best bet is just to position yourself as someone who can help the organization and by extension, make him look good. And, you know, I'm, I'm still annoyed by the fact that the burden was on you to, rev- to define the review process, but it definitely gave you some power in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, it definitely did because uh, my review basically became like, look at my accomplishments. <laughs> Um, here's, here's one thing I think I could maybe work on, but I think I'm also doing okay <laughs> on it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, it was very funny. Cause it, yeah, he was basically like, what do you think you lack? And I'm like, experience. Right. Like I'm only two years into my career. And I just think when I'm in a room with senior designers, they ask better questions than I do. And that's just like a yeah. time thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's something personal. Especially because so many um, performance reviews start around employee self self-reflection. I think, um, I think there can be a disservice in being mm. honest about it. Um, like, I think if you are supposed to self-reflect, you are supposed to self-reflect on how to sell yourself the way you would for an yeah. interview. Um, like yeah. I don't, most companies don't actually want you to be honest. No. Uh, at all. I think you're right. Which is frustrating. <laughs> I mean, when I did self-reviews, um, 
you know, I'm someone who gravitates towards self-reflection and I would put a lot of thought into the performance review and then I would kind of like go back and rewrite it so that it wasn't a soul-bearing exercise. You know, I didn't I didn't trust my mm-hmm. manager or the organization in general enough to expose the ways that I feel felt inadequate or unsupported on the job and I just wasn't going to offer up as much self-criticism as I felt, um, which I think is wise. And, you know, Mm -hmm. most of the time, my managers would agree with my assessments, and they would write some additional nice things. But I don't honestly remember walking out with a deeper insight into my performance. And in some ways, I think I could have used some constructive feedback, especially further into my career. And, you know, I'm realizing now that I have a problem with the employee review process, starting with a self-evaluation, because you are asking the person who has less power in the overall dynamic to make themselves vulnerable with a self-critique. And I think the Mm -hmm. burden should be on the manager to articulate the bigger picture goals and point out where they see the employee's strengths and challenges within that specific context. You know, it's not personal strengths and weaknesses. It's about the job and the goals and how the person is doing vis-a-vis those. So I kind of just feel like it's lazy to ask the employee to shape the conversation. I 100% agree. Because like, again, like going back to the critique in the classroom, I didn't go up there and critique my work first. Like everybody else had their pass at it. And then I got to say, like, I agree with you or I disagree with you. I got to decide where I wanted to fight you and where I wanted to like align myself with you. Like I... I, I totally agree. And I just think like, I, th- I just think, mm-hmm. I think managers lack training and I think companies don't really understand what managers should be doing and yeah. managers should be growing their people. Um, and that is not, and ultimately what a lot of managerial roles become is not them growing their people, but them getting credit for work they yeah. didn't really have a part of and like things like that. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's incredibly frustrating. Why would you do that? Your work is there. I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, you don't you don't start a graphic design critique by critiquing your own work. Companies don't value vulnerability, and then they're asking you to be vulnerable because um, that's like one thing I really struggle with about corporations is the fact that vulnerability is a weakness. When I would say like my vulnerability is my number one strength. Mm-hmm. Um, it's how you connect with people. It's how you move through the world is by opening yourself up and learning things, um, and companies, like, completely, like, ick that. Um, In your essay, you talk a lot about, or not a lot, but you kind of mention about how employers make hiring mistakes and then take this, like, slow, painful, terrible process to figure out how to fix them, either by, like, scrutinizing the employee and then eventually firing them or scrutinizing them, keeping them and scrutinizing them for the rest of their lives at that company. <laughs> yep. um, I've, I've seen that happen to many a friend where they got put on a yep. PIP um, and then they like, they survived their PIP period, mm-hmm. but like they're, they just feel like they're walking on eggshells the rest of their yeah time at that company. Um, I think this happens a lot. And we talked already kind of about communication and the real lack of communication in the corporate world. I think ultimately most of the time where a person fails at their job, it is at the fault of Mm -hmm. the company. A lot of job postings don't actually explain the challenges of the roles because they're trying to sell themselves to you as you Mm -hmm. apply. And as a result, they 
hire the wrong mm-hmm. employee and in a way are catfishing this job because this job isn't what you think it is when you actually step into the role. Since you have had the opportunity to be a manager, have you ever seen something like this play out or ended up on either side of job catfishing? <laughs> I love this phrase, job catfishing. Um, catfishing in general is just so fascinating to me. Um, but yeah, no, you mentioned the performance improvement plan, the PIP, um, which is the process by which someone isn't working out in their job and then they're given a, you know, a three month plan to improve, you know, they're, they're given some goals to meet, which are generally impossible and hard to survive. And it's sort of just a whole mechanism of getting an employee, um, a rationale for firing them. And, you know, yeah, when someone survives that process, I don't think they ever feel valid within their job. No. And that process isn't for them. It's for the liability of a company. So they can't get sued. Totally. So, you know, to get back to your, your question, um, my own, Career moves have involved taking newly created roles where there was going to be a lot of unknowns. Um, and I think that was clear out of the gate. Um, so I don't feel like I have personally witnessed or experienced. Well, no, I should say I haven't personally experienced this, but I definitely witnessed it with this friend who I wrote about in my essay. Um, she definitely experienced the catfishing that you just described. Her actual job title ended up being different from the one that she applied for. And the company pulled this very clever sleight of hand to change the title in the hiring process. And I think the company probably thought that these changes weren't terribly significant. But in fact, my friend wouldn't have even applied for the job title that she currently holds. So yeah, right. I, I think companies create jobs for the organization that they hope to be, not what they currently mm-hmm. are. And yes. that kind of aspirational hiring makes sense on some level. But if it isn't handled with transparency, then employees can feel totally misled. Have, have you witnessed a catfishing experience? Um, I think I've been the catfish <laughs> when I think about it. Um, so when I was hired on um, at my current job, I think I catfished them. Like now that I've like reflected on the idea of like corporate catfishing, they described a very like I came on as a contractor to do digital production design work. So this would be like email production, display ad production, like super boring mm-hmm. work. Uh, They're basically like, please do all this work from home and don't come into the office. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I did is I came into the office uh, three days a week. Um, I socialized with everybody. I had lunch because I knew that was my way in. I was like, if I want to convert this contract and become a full-time employee, I have to make everybody like yep. me and want to have me around. Yep. And like doing that from home does not benefit no. me. So I basically, I think, told them that I was going to work from home. And then didn't. <laughs> um, so I think I catfished them. And even thinking about like, because like, so I have been doing a role that is not my role for probably the past two or three, two, two, two-ish years at this job, uh, two and a half maybe. Uh, but it's kind of like on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I've decided that I don't want to do the job they hired me mm-hmm. for. And so I've pushed myself to grow in this other role. Um, and so like talking about like the promotion, the only benefit that happened with that delay in my promotion is I was able to get promoted to the title that I wanted to. So I was just going to get promoted from a junior graphic designer to a senior graphic. I mean, not a senior, that would be a Mm. big jump, um, to a normal graphic Mm -hmm. designer. Um, and 
basically what happened in that extra, I guess, nine months I waited for that promotion is uh, me and uh, actually the same mentor who gave me the bad advice. He did make up for okay. it a hundred percent. He worked with me to kind of make this made up title. Like, so I'm now a visual experience designer. This isn't kind of a real thing. That's cool, Sounds um, good. Like it's not, it's not an industry standard term, but basically it is what we came up with together that described my role because about half my role is visual campaign work and about half of it is UX mm-hmm. work. So we just kind of made this like hybrid weird title. Um, and so it like worked out in my favor. Like I said, he, he may have screwed up in that moment, but he really, really made up for it. And I'm very thankful for it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that he came through. And I think what you did <laughs> was, did. was smart. I mean, yes, I guess it's, it could be called catfishing. It could also be called um, getting your foot in the door, you know, and I don't think anyone's yes. ever frowned upon that. So yeah. It's um, funny, though. Yeah. But I do laugh because um like even talking to my coworkers now who I've been working with for almost three years, they're like, yeah, when we hired you, the expectation was that you were going to be basically like this email display ad monkey and you were just going to do all this production design and get stuff out the door. And then you came in and you didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They're like, they're they're super thankful to have me. Like, so it's like not a bad thing or poor reflection. Uh, But I, I would say it maybe isn't catfishing, but like if you thought about a company doing that to a person, it would feel like catfishing. Um, So like gray area, it worked out well for me. Um, I would, Highly recommend, um, I don't know, if you're on a contract position that you want to be converted, like really getting in as much FaceTime as you can with the people who could hire you. Uh, Like I even remember the day before I got my like job conversion offer, it was the weirdest day because I got invited to this company event that like technically contractors weren't invited Mm -hmm. to. And then all my employees, like my fellow employees ended up saying like all this weird mushy things about me. And I'm like, I don't know what's happening. Why is everyone being so mushy? And then the next day I got the job offer and I was like, "Mm, this is, I was like, that's wild. Um, I was like, now I know why everybody was so weird as everybody knew knew except for me. That's nice. (laughs) That's good. I mean, look, it's, it's up to them to say to you, hey, you know, it's great you're so ambitious, but we only need this. And, you know, yes. so therefore, you'll, you yeah. should take this energy um, elsewhere. Um, and I took advantage of having a boss who doesn't know how to manage people. Um, so he would have no idea how to tell me not to do these things. Well, I guess they probably um, needed it, too. So... So yeah, I really feel like this whole performance review issue is an issue of communication. And you know, mm-hmm. that managers need to take responsibility for articulating goals to their best to the best of their ability. And no one holds all the cards, you know, as you've pointed out, employees have cards to hold as well. Um, and no one mm-hmm. knows all the answers and goals can change and hiring mistakes happen. But I just wish that everyone was trained to make performance conversations less personal and more contextual. Um, I think we can be more honest and at the same time mm-hmm. feel less vulnerable when we know that we're not being judged personally, but rather how we sync mm-hmm. up to the requirements of the job. Critique school. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> We need critique school critique so desperately school. for everybody. <laughs> 
So I, I applaud you for seeking the promotion and higher pay. And if you don't get it, I can tell already that you see it for what it is, um, that it's about the context and the limitations of your current company and not a reflection on who you are and what your potential is. Yeah. And I, I would like to also just real quick acknowledge, I work in the in tech industry. So this was a fully different game. Um, like I have more cards than some employees do. And I have a lot of privilege because of that, because in the tech industry, it's competitive to hire. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it puts, I just, I do want to throw that out there because I know, I know from when I worked retail that I held no cards. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, you do hold the cards of that lost productivity, but retailers, people who manage retail, they don't really necessarily have that foresight to see that. Um, yeah. And so I just, I do want to throw that out there that I, I do think there's a lot of privilege and kind of the brazenness and rashness that I have. <laughs> Because I do work in an industry where, like, they have to earn their employees a little bit more than other industries. Don't get me wrong. The second they can take my job overseas, it's gone. And I know that. But while that's not the case, I'm going to milk the heck out of it. Yeah. And, you know, the worst that can happen to anyone is that you're told no. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that the promotion is just not going to happen. And that's useful information to have and good to initiate that conversation either way. Yeah, it's really important to know where you stand to know where you should be taking your future. Indeed. Well, Haley, I think your future is going to be just fine. Um, I'm very confident in you. And uh, thank you <laughs> thank for you. sharing all of this with me. Yes, thank you. This was good fun. <laughs> As always. Wow. That was so great. Thank you so much, Haley and Carrie, for taking the time to record your conversation and, you know, letting all of us hear it. I did want to say that I most definitely have been catfished by an employer, basically lured into the interview process with one job, then the official job offer was for a different title or role. I bet some of you who are listening to this right now have had the same experience. In fact, this happened to me with my last job, the one I had before the pandemic. At that point, I took it because I wanted the money and the health insurance, but it did feel like a bummer to move back several years in my career from a title perspective. I ended up in a really weird situation where I had as much experience, if not more, than my boss, but she had a more traditional retail experience, whereas I came from startup culture and, you know, I also... I'm a non-traditional sort of person. So it was it was very weird. Um, I'm sure that is one of the reasons I was laid off in the pandemic. I did want to say that I think the vast majority of performance reviews that are happening out there are actually so unhelpful. And that that doesn't mean that they have to be or that they can't be great. Because if you have a great manager who is a true mentor, if your employer gives managers the tools and support to provide true, helpful feedback and create development plans, well, then a performance review can be an incredible tool. Like for me, mentoring and developing talent is one of my favorite things about my job. Well, I guess I don't have, my job right now is different, right? It's making this podcast and I work alone. But back when I had a whole team, training and helping people grow their skills and their career was just like my favorite thing. And so I would find a way to make 
the performance review structure work for me. But for most of my jobs, the raise was already determined before I wrote the performance review for the person on my team. Someone who was controlling the budget would tell me the raise I was allowed to give, and I was expected to generate a review that supported that number. So I often would find myself having to score lower than I wanted and then create feedback that aligned with that lower score because, spoiler, the raise I was allowed to give was never, and I mean that all caps, never higher than I had planned it. It was always lower, which meant even if I felt that an employee was killing it, which in most cases they were, and deserved to be rewarded for all of their hard work, I still had to write this slightly negative performance review to justify on paper this lower raise. I, I'm getting angry just talking about it. What happens is that the opportunity to give true feedback and mentorship is lost. I mean, once again, I would salvage it. I would come to the table with all of these development plans and like a calendar. And we would literally, I would do everything I could to ensure that the employee did not feel defeated by this performance review, by, you know, let's give ourselves some marching orders. Like, let's make a plan for how you're totally going to get a raise the next time. Of course, I was in that moment writing a check that, as as my uncle used to like to say, writing a check that my ass could not cash because I was not going to get to determine whether they got that next raise either. And not to be depressing, but their hard work wasn't going to determine that either. And so in many corporate settings, the performance review process is just a way of controlling the flow of wage increases to ensure that they stay on budget, that they happen all at once at a specific time for cash flow purposes, and that everyone gets to feel the illusion that raises were determined fairly, which they most definitely were not. I had another boss who felt that scoring too high would give workers an inflated sense of self-esteem, and so she would make me rewrite my reviews until they were negative enough to make the people feel at least somewhat defeated. Her idea being, if you tell someone that they are doing a great job, they won't be motivated to continue doing a good job, which is so cynical and I hope not true. Do you think that's true? I hope it's not true. I just want to add one more thing. Back during the 2008 recession, I was in the same place in my career where Haley is now. And my company instated a freeze on raises and promotions that lasted almost two years. It was devastating for many of us lower level workers who were in that early or even early mid level of our careers. And it definitely set back my career. I would probably be a VP or a president somewhere right now but I was held back in title at a really integral moment in my life. And in buying, it's all about the title. There's a progression, there's a timeline, and if you are falling behind, it's kind of impossible to catch up. Same thing goes for salary increases, right? Ironically, in the midst of that, my employer also made a record high level of profit during that wage freeze. Coincidence? Well, thinking about that is a great transition into my conversation with Meg because we are going to talk about how employers have continued 
to prioritize profits over people, even during a global pandemic. So let's get into it. Well, Meg, you've, you're regular around here, but why don't you remind everyone of who you are? Totally. Um, thanks, Amanda. I'm Meg. I'm the content producer over at CloseHorse.World and longtime uh, Close Horse community member and fan. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm here to chat with Amanda for the tail end of Labor Month. So let's get it on. We were paired up because... We both have been on unemployment in Pennsylvania. So what a distinction. <laughs> totally. We've also both experienced burnout as well, if we want to go the yes. other way around. So we've got lots to discuss. For sure. For sure. Um, I, Meg, I was actually rereading your essay today and oh. getting like so excited to talk about it. Um, but first, we're going to talk about mine. We're going to talk about mm-hmm. unemployment. And then we're going to transition mm-hmm. into Meg's. So, um, Amanda, obviously, I enjoyed reading your essay for so many reasons. But, you know, one of which, you know, because I could relate. So... <laughs> Uh, let's remind everyone for those who have read but may not remember or those who have not read your essay yet, you know, um, the number of flaming hurdles that people have to jump through just Ugh. to qualify for unemployment in Pennsylvania. Uh, and granted, this was adjusted once the pandemic hit because these were like relatively unforeseen and unique circumstances. But let's talk about just how difficult it is to qualify for unemployment, um, (laughs) given the state that you live in. Yeah, yeah. And I will say, based on my work helping other people and working with unemployed action, the problems we experienced in Pennsylvania are not, they're not a unique situation. This, I mean, Mm -hmm. actually, in Florida, the system was so decrepit and so unprepared for what happened that people were waiting in line to fill out paper applications. So at least here in Pennsylvania, you could apply via the internet. The results <laughs> varied. But uh, so here in Pennsylvania, you know, you lose your job, you have to go on to the website and, you know, fill out a claim. And for the most part, it's not super challenging, but the website is really decrepit and, and will kick you out a couple times if it's a particularly busy day. There are limited hours each day when you can actually do that. Like you couldn't wake up at midnight, or I guess some people are still awake then. I live a farmer life now. Uh, but you couldn't at midnight say I'm going to apply for unemployment because the site's down overnight. It's also down on Saturdays. And none of that is very clear when you visit the site, right? Um mm-hmm. The application itself, I think, could be confusing and is confusing for many people because it uses a lot of jargon, verbiage, if you will, that is only someone who actually works for the Department of Labor and Industry would truly know. I am a very wordy person. You know, I I love a good vocabulary word. I read constantly. And I found myself having to look up a lot of the things they were asking me because it was a little confusing. Once you take care of that, you think, okay, I have successfully completed my claim. I'm sure the money's going to come soon. Right. And yeah, I some people that I was furloughed with at the same time did get their unemployment benefits within a few weeks. I waited three months for no particular reason. There wasn't a problem with my application Um, It was just the person it was assigned to had too much work or, I don't know, got sick. Who knows? I'll never know. 
but it took months to be processed. And so I was just kind of in this holding pattern, feeling like, wow, this is probably going to get approved after I go back to work. Of course, I didn't go back to work. And so that put a lot more pressure on me getting my benefits. I don't know if everybody remembers, but the CARES Act was the first bill that was signed into law early in the pandemic. And it provided many, many different programs, right? Mm -hmm. One of them was all of these extended and enhanced unemployment benefits. It expired on the 26th of December, otherwise known as the day after Christmas. And uh, for at least a month, you know, there had been a lot of work to, you know, draft a new law. I'm, I think it's the Heroes Act. Does that sound right to you? That Um, does sound right. Yeah. Yeah. There's been so many. And so unfortunately, uh, Trump didn't sign it into law until after the CARES Act had expired. And so all of the computer systems lost their mind. They just, a term that comes to mind is they shit the bed. (laughs) Um, And that is because these computer systems have been intentionally not updated to the internet era, if you will. Uh, Most of them use a language called COBOL. And if you don't know what that is, don't feel ashamed because it's like a computer language from the 60s. And most people who go to school for computer science, for coding, for programming now, don't learn that. It's considered an antiquated language. So most people who know COBOL are retired. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? That is. And I think that just speaks to how little some states have invested in unemployment as a service to uh, denizens of the state, which is Mm -hmm. kind of frustrating because, I mean, this is a safety net that we're paying into with each paycheck we get from an employer or with taxes that we pay. So, you know, if you actually do need this service, which a lot of people do and, and especially, you know, over the past year. And it just becomes even that much more difficult to get it. It becomes your full-time job just to acquire the unemployment that you so clearly deserve. I I certainly was feeling a little bit um, disenchanted with the whole process, as I'm sure a lot of people were. Yeah. And so it's like difficult because this system has been intentionally neglected in all of the states, which I think is really interesting because mm-hmm. it's not as if uh, 2008 was that long ago. And that was a really deep recession where a lot of people lost jobs. I know I held on to my job, but it certainly shifted the trajectory of my career. How about you, Meg? Do you feel like Oh, it- yeah, definitely. Yeah. I actually graduated into that recession. So it was extra fun trying to get my career started. And that's part of the reason I even retreated into grad school, as I sort of um, vaguely uh, referred to in our our last chat when we talked Mm -hmm. about creativity and capitalism, because the job market was just that tough given the recession. So I was was struggling myself just to, um, you know, get my professional aspirations going. It, it It was hard all around. Right, right. And I will say that, like, yes, the internet has become faster and more elaborate since 2008, Mm -hmm. but it still was leaps and bounds beyond where the unemployment system is right now, like technologically. Mm -hmm. And so in the midst of the recession, at least here in Pennsylvania, the legislature approved additional funding to upgrade the system because guess what? It was also a nightmare Mm -hmm. then. But what the uh, the Department of Labor and Industry decided to do was not do that (laughs) and hold on to the money. 
um, which seems illegal, but I'm not in charge around here. And so they did do some minor changes, but the contractors that they hired to do that, the vendors, I guess is what they call them, were not great. In fact, the vendor that they did choose to create the PUA system, PUA, as they (laughs) call it, which is the special unemployment for gig workers, basically, freelancers, Mm -hmm. et cetera, people who don't get a W-2. That system was created by an outside vendor who has a terrible track record, um, is generally considered inadvisable to hire for things like this. And yet they did it because it was a hot deal. I'm on traditional unemployment, so I didn't have to deal with the PUA system, but apparently it was a nightmare also for everybody who tried to sign up. And it is so poorly created that those people can't even get direct deposit for their payments. It has to be sent to a card. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This like, you know, pay to play debit card. I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. You literally pay to like use it. Um, it's yeah. so scammy. There are service right? fees. Yeah, yeah. Here in Pennsylvania, the system was really, really bad. And then we have this like tsunami of unemployment. And when the bill expired in December, the computer system here in Pennsylvania was like, all right, I, I just give up, you know? And uh, what happened is a lot of people, not everybody, you had to be in a specific sort of bucket. You had to be someone who had used all of their weeks of traditional unemployment and were going to shift to PEUC, which was the federal extension that was created as part of the HEROES Act. If you had already exhausted your traditional benefits and had shifted to PEUC before the 26th of December, you were going to be fine. Your payments were going to continue. If, as I did and many, many other people did, that week was the week you were supposed to shift over to PEUC, which was a massive number of people because a lot of people got laid off at the same exact time, including myself, which would be yeah. like the last week of March. Um, then you were in this weird holding pattern while they tried to fix your claim. And I did not get a payment until mid to late March. Uh it was terrible. I was very stressed out. I couldn't sleep. I am lucky because Dustin has a job. So we were not like homeless or starving. But I would go into the Facebook groups where I helped people. And people were in a bad situation. People had their cars repossessed. They couldn't afford diapers or medication or health care. Um, they were losing their internet. So their kids couldn't do school anymore. People didn't even have gas to drive to the food bank, which by the way, the Department of Labor and Industry was telling us, listen, if you haven't gotten your unemployment, thank you for your patience, you should go to a food bank. Like, that's literally what they were telling us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's no, like, consideration or reconciliation or retribution for having to wait for this money that you need to survive, right? It's just, okay, you have to wait, which is really disappointing. Yeah. And there was this general attitude outside of the people who were really suffering that everybody was just lazy, that they were entitled, that they didn't want to work and that people, this is a myth that drives me crazy. People were somehow getting rich off of unemployment. Ugh. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that yeah, for a second. Yeah. Let's just this myth that people are getting so rich or are, you know, benefiting so much from unemployment that, you know, they would never want to work again. It's not even free money, as we established earlier. You know, this is something that you contribute to with taxes, with your paycheck, 
and even if that weren't true, the amount of compensation you get from for unemployment in any state in this country, it, it, it would never be enough to retire on or save with. <laughs> no! And it's, it's, of course, it's temporary. So it's not going to last forever. So so who are these people that are getting wealthy on unemployment? Oh, my God. I, I, know. <laughs> I mean, I want to say that I get the maximum here in Pennsylvania. The other thing that a lot of people might not know is that because unemployment is a state program, states determine their benefits. So there's a pretty wide spectrum. Like there are states where the average is about $200. And then there are places like Boston where it gets closer to four or $500. Pennsylvania is kind of in the middle. So I get the maximum here, which is less than 20% of my income before I lost my job and uh, is about before taxes, $24,000 a year. It's not your, I mean, I can barely afford my health insurance, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not a lot of money, even with the extra $1,200 a month that we have been getting, but we weren't getting for a while on and on and on. Mm -hmm. It's enough to get by as long as you don't have a mortgage, a car payment, children, health issues Mm -hmm. that require a lot more healthcare. I mean, I could go on and on. It's not enough to live in the city. Uh, We had to move out to the country. And I cannot say this enough. People want to work. Yeah, of course, there are lazy people. There are lazy people at all jobs and all income levels, right? There are lazy people with jobs. Most people want to work because you don't make enough money off of unemployment to actually make a living. And you don't get benefits. And so true. It's super inconsistent. So One thing that had, I mean, I think of the pandemic, one of the uh, side effects of the pandemic as it has turned trolling into a pastime for so many people, there would be people who would come into the unemployment groups on Facebook where all we were literally doing is helping people fill out their claims, manage what was going on, you know, help them, you know, decode all the mail that they would get or questions and stuff like that. There are people, people who would show up in the group to be like, you're all fucking lazy, go get a job. There would also be people who would show up who would say, hey, I've had to work at a grocery store this whole pandemic. I don't want to hear you losers talking about how you don't get your unemployment. Like I have to work and you're probably making more money than me. And I I would say, listen, sir, uh, yeah, you know, maybe I'm making as much money on unemployment at home as you are at the grocery store, but you also have a future, right? You have health insurance, you have other benefits, and you know that you have a paycheck coming every week. And you know that when the pandemic is over, that you have a job. The rest of us don't know that. We don't have any certainty. Who would mm-hmm. who would want to live that way? I don't think anybody. And, and furthermore, uh, having a job affords you some control over your career, your life, your finances. I mean, when you're on unemployment, you are depending on the government, albeit a state government, for your income, which can be a very scary situation for a lot of people. And, you know, there's also this idea that, you know, hopefully people who are are gainfully employed right now are able to enjoy their work in some capacity. But, you know, having a, a way to spend your time that is productive for you, that feels valuable, that is fulfilling. And, 
you know, it's it's really just surprising to me how much people want to criticize individuals who have found themselves on unemployment as if they intentionally gained the system to end <laughs> I know, up there. I know. I, I just, uh, I don't understand that. And it sounds like there's a lot of pent up anger and aggression from those people that are like jumping into these, you know, Facebook groups that you're, you know, spending time in helping people and, and just expressing all of this anger. Like, are you jealous? Do you want to be on unemployment? Like maybe, you know, it's a grass is always greener situation. Cause I, I really don't understand that. Yeah. Well, and I also think that the media, like the right wing media and like the GOP have built up this myth that people are intentionally not working to get these benefits that people are trying to get fired to get these benefits. I have to, I want to say this for a lot of people who might not know if you get fired from your job because you like broke company policy or you were late all the time, you're getting written up, you don't get unemployment. You don't get unemployment. If you quit your job, Mm -hmm. you only qualify for unemployment benefits if you were laid off or you could not meet the company's like sort of expectations for your work. Um, So it's, it's not like it's easy to get unemployment in the first place. Oh, it's so hard. And something else that I think is really important to call out for people. Let's say you got COVID while you were on unemployment. You can't get any benefits while you're sick because you're not ready and able to work. If you have a baby while you're on unemployment, you can't get unemployment benefits while you're having the baby and recovering. If you have surgery, same thing. It's not like you get paid time off to go have a baby or get surgery. It's a very vulnerable situation. Absolutely. And I think this also speaks to the issue that for people that are fortunate enough to be employed, they're still not being compensated properly for their time, whether it's in their paycheck or their benefits or the way they're treated at work. You know, you mentioned someone who was a a grocery store worker who, you know, moonlighted in the chat room that you were in about unemployment. Like grocery, (laughs) people who work in grocery stores, we've really discovered who the essential workers of this pandemic are. And and I don't know if, I don't know for a fact, uh, if they're afforded the um, proper respect and, you know, compensation for, for what they do. I don't know if, if they're treated the way they need to be treated because they are truly essential. And I think they're probably feeling some of that frustration. And maybe, I don't know for sure, but maybe those people are taking it out on those unemployment chat rooms because they've nowhere else to express themselves. You know, I, they don't want to necessarily lose their job, oh, but I'm they're sure. not, you know, getting treated the way they need to be treated. I mean, honestly, the unemployment system is just another symptom of how little regard there is for the working class, which I know that sounds like a really intense statement, but what we should really be doing is all of us banding Mm -hmm. together to make change. Because I agree, the system is broken. You shouldn't be making so little to work at a grocery store in general, especially during a pandemic. And people shouldn't, Who? I mean, seriously, somehow getting an extra $300 a week is making people make more on unemployment than at their jobs. How fucked up is that? Uh, it's, it's super fucked that up. That is ridiculous. That is the problem that people should be angry about. Not that the benefits exist in the first Absolutely. place. All right, Amanda, let's let's talk about the bigger picture here for a second. Let's talk about all these major companies that are laying people off that are, you know, letting people go so that they end up on unemployment. You know, I, I, and honestly, you know, 
I find it very upsetting. And you've alluded to this in your article. A lot of these companies, you know, it's likely that their motivation is just to be able to report record profitability. You know, human resources are some of the most expensive um, costs of doing any business. And it, it seems like in this pandemic, one of the major go-tos for a lot of big business has been to just let the people go so that they can hold on to their money. It's such a heartless move, in my opinion. And and the government is picking up the tab, which kind of blows my mind, you know, how Mm -hmm. much they're willing Mm -hmm. to, you know, accommodate these corporations so they can cut expenses, you know. Can you speak to that a little bit more? I mean, I I know you've had direct experience with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was laid off for that exact reason, not because I had a bad job performance, not because the company was going to go under. In fact, the company that employed me is a huge retail conglomerate that has multiple brands that has hundreds of million dollars just in the bank, you know, uh, definitely could afford to keep paying my paycheck was it wasn't like a small business that like a restaurant Mm -hmm. that was going to go under because they had to close their doors. They still had a really strong online business that was keeping the company rolling. They opened stores the moment they could um, and really didn't do a lot to protect their store workers either. But that's a whole other story. Um, So yeah, so I was laid off, you know, the last week of July of last year. Now that might not mean much to a lot of people who don't work in the biz, but for those of you who do, you hear the last week of July and you say, huh, that's the end of a fiscal quarter. That's interesting timing. And I would say, ding, 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 you are correct. Because I get laid off. You know, I'm, I get uh, a very tiny severance, uh, not commiserate with the level of work I've done, uh, the amount of work I've done, or the position I had. My insurance was cut off. I got an extra five days of health insurance. Oh, wow. Yeah, it sucked, right? It was just because like, you know, like things are really bad here. Like we're just not doing very well and we have to make cutbacks. And I was very sympathetic because I was like, yeah, like I get it. Like it's better for me to lose my job than like five people to lose their job. Fine. Although, you know, real talk of everyone on my team, I was the one who's like kind of the most uh, life career was ended by being laid off because, you know, I I am at a level where there aren't a lot of jobs um, and Unlike everybody else I worked with, I don't come from generational wealth. My parents were going to be able to help me out. I couldn't move in with my parents, that kind of thing. Anyway, Mm -hmm. I accepted it with a really high level of toxic positivity, just trying to be so nice. And a week later, I'm laying in bed. I wake up. I have a million text messages and Instagram messages that are screenshots of a plethora of articles that my employer is being written about in how they had just filed their or like shared their Q2 results Mm -hmm. and they had made a quote, this was the, and this was the adjective surprise $34 million profit, which was amazing because it was in the midst of a pandemic. And I'm here to tell all of you, there are two ways that money was made. One by not paying garment workers and canceling tons of orders and two by not paying its workers here in the United States by either furloughing them or laying them off. That money was directly taken out of their workers' pockets. Profit over people. Profit over people. It's disgusting. And like, my company is not the only place that did that. Let me tell you, that was really common. We heard a lot about people who worked in the service industry losing their jobs, right? Mm -hmm. That is a more organic relationship, I guess I would say, because restaurants were closed, right? Mm -hmm. Most restaurants are small businesses. It, It makes sense 
But when we talk about a huge corporation like that, that has the financial security to keep their workers around and doesn't choose to do that, we're really talking about a major ethical issue. Absolutely. And I'm sure a lot of those companies that laid people off probably still got, you know, pandemic loans. And it makes you wonder what they're doing with that money. You know, all these like government bailouts, so to speak, that were related to the coronavirus outbreak. I that yeah. I don't have any, you know, facts to substantiate that, but I'm just curious, you know, um, it would be interesting to look into um, companies that were benefiting from that and, you know, what their, you know, behavior was like in terms of their um, human resources. I feel like I saw like some, you know, probably clickbait articles here and there about mm-hmm. um, companies spending, you know, loan money from the government during that time in interesting ways. It is interesting because I feel like we would see you know, news articles about like the airlines, we're going to have to furlough people and like Mm -hmm. restaurants. But the reality is that for a lot of these like retail companies and other large corporations, we didn't see any of that kind of coverage. And I know so many people who lost their job in the pandemic who worked, for example, in fashion and retail. So Mm -hmm. I feel like these companies kind of kept it hush hush for obvious reasons. Because if you heard that, I mean, I mean, Meg, like, you know where I worked, but let's just say you did. But I said, you know, this is what happened to me. This is where I worked. Would you actually want to shop there anymore? No, I wouldn't want to shop there anyway, but. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you would be like, what the fuck? Like, that is so messed up. And I think when you say it out loud like that, it is so dark. And that is the reality for so many people who lost their jobs. So, you know, I did not know much about the unemployment system before this all happened. Obviously, I've had to, I've had a crash course in it. And Mm -hmm. I found out that unemployment as a program was created after the Great Depression as part of the New Deal. And it was because, you know, analysts were realizing that most of the time, like a vast majority of the time, when workers lost their job, it wasn't because of something they'd done wrong. It wasn't performance related. It was because companies were doing layoffs to preserve profitability. And that is why unemployment insurance, unemployment compensation was created in the first place, Um, because often these numbers would be pretty devastating, Uh, often, especially back in that era, if you worked in a town where there was only one industry around, like if Mm -hmm. you got laid off, you're in a bad situation, right? Yeah. I feel like we have lost sight of that, that this problem of companies laying people off to preserve profit is as old as time practically. And yet we still haven't redefined how we like, I don't know, just like, why is that okay? I think it makes it easier for the powers that be honestly, because it's, it's less, you know, work for them or less money out of the government's pocket, so to speak. I mean, that's all, you know, a hypothesis. But I mean, before (laughs) 2020, the unemployment system was was pretty low key and it was really hard to get on it anyway. So there weren't a lot of people benefiting from it as they deserve to. Um, But yeah, it's it's definitely wild. And, you know, from a a human resources perspective, you know, if there's a performance issue with a job, I feel like more often than not, of course, there are always extenuating circumstances. It would be 
more cost effective to keep that employee and work with them to improve their performance than to fire them and hire someone completely new, train them, get them used to everything, what, regardless of what the industry is. I mean, you know, all jobs require some sort of training or onboarding. I mean, to, yeah, to say yeah. otherwise is just ignorant. So, yeah, I mean, it just seems so obvious that all of this, you know, unemployment layoff is, is a result of companies just trying to think about their bottom line. I mean, I think it's really interesting, actually, that you bring that up, like the cost of onboarding people and training them and whatnot, because like, I've, I don't know, about a month ago, maybe a little bit longer ago, I found out that while my head role had been technically eliminated, that was why it was being laid off, mm-hmm. um, someone else was moved into my role. And that person was at least 10 years younger than me and had a about 10% of the experience I'd had in buying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that because I trained and onboarded that person. Oh um, my gosh. So you did the work for them. It was internal. Kind so it was an of, easy shift. And they probably underpaid them. Also, I was interesting. I was like, I the day I found that out, thank you, LinkedIn. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I was really upset and I texted Kim, who you all know from the department about it. And I was Hi, like, Kim. I'm really upset. <laughs> and we, she was like, do you want to talk on the phone? It was so early in the morning in LA when we had this conversation. And she was like, I, j- I just can't believe this. Like, because the thing is like buying is an experienced thing. Mm-hmm. The role that I had before was actually a step back in title from what I'd had before that. But I was just like, I want money. I want health insurance. I'll take it. And that title itself is the kind of title that you need at least 10 years of experience to get to um, because there is so much high level strategy involved. You need experience for it. Mm-hmm. And Kim was just like mortified. She was like, I don't understand why they would f- pull someone in who has such little experience to do that job because now that now that the pandemic is over, they need someone with experience to help them rebuild their business. And I was like, yeah, I don't get it either. But like, they're not thinking things through that way. They're thinking about the bottom line, which is not, and I don't want to like denigrate the person who is now the senior buyer at my old job because, you know, she's amazing. She's so funny and a delightful person and she's smart, but she doesn't have that experience. Right. It's not about that person per se, but it's about the the strategy of the company and the way they're behaving And what that signals, you know, and and you're right. Like you can't, I mean, you can study fashion, of course, and you can study business, but you can't get a degree in buying retail. As you said, that comes from on the job experience. So it's not easily replaced. And I mean, perhaps they're just, you know, I I don't know what they're thinking, but perhaps they're thinking that, okay, you know, let's um, export all of this stress and work onto this person. And if they rise to the occasion and succeed, great. We got a hot deal out of that. And if they fail, then we'll just (laughs) go to the next person. I mean, maybe they're just, you know, um, outsourcing all of that, which is really unfortunate. (laughs) I mean, I think that's interesting because it does speak to like, uh, the way so many employers view their employees, which is that they're pretty disposable Mm -hmm. and they're very plug and play. Like, Oh, those batteries went dead. Throw them out. Put some new ones in there. Next. Yeah. There isn't that level of loyalty that we, the employees, are expected to give, right? Absolutely. And that is a great transition into your <laughs> article. We didn't even plan this. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. Yeah. 
No, you're so right. It's very low risk for a big company to test somebody out, but it's very high risk for that individual. You know, I mean, this this could be their career at stake. So how are they supposed to be able to say no? Right, right. Well, and especially right now, mm-hmm. like you don't have a lot of other options. So I think something that I have been thinking about so much for the past few months, especially during Labor Month, mm-hmm. is there are so many ways in which we, the employees, are manipulated into giving it our all way more than we actually have, Mm -hmm. right? It's interesting because the level of loyalty and sacrifice that we are expected to give our employer Mm -hmm. is like literally not reciprocated (laughs) at all. Uh, And one of those one of those ways that companies manipulate us is that idea of work as family. It seems sketchy to me. I'm just going to say this right off the bat. I've had many jobs where we're supposed to view our coworkers like family. Our job, even if it's a big evil corporation, we're a family, right? Mm-hmm. But aren't most families pretty dysfunctional? I mean, I think on some level, yes. I mean, if if you're a, a family and of course you know, you can define family however you like. I, I like the idea of defining family as, as people who love and support you. Family can be chosen. You can be related. You can be by blood or by marriage, what have you. It's it's up to you. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's going to be some conflict eventually. There's going to be some fighting. It, it's That's natural. And yes, um, the dysfunctional family is is definitely a common trope, I think. And yeah, it's, it's funny to... Um, think of a workplace as a family, but I think that's very advantageous, you know, as a perspective for a lot of employers, um, because the idea is like, it's your family, you're supposed to sacrifice for your family, you're supposed to invest in your family, you're supposed to care about your family, you're, you're supposed to spend time with your family, there's all these, you know, cultural notions around family that I think, the workplace, you know, could seemingly benefit from in terms of capitalizing on on people's time and energy and resources. And I don't know, you know, I don't think it's necessarily insidious per se. I, you know, I, I would like to think that employers that talk about that might think it's it's mutually beneficial because, of course, you know, if you enjoy your work more truly, if you if you do feel connected to your work, it's it's easier to do and it's not as draining. So there might be this idea that it's mutually beneficial, but I think it can bring more harm than you realize if, if not, you know, like, and it, it can be very subtle. So I think there's a lot of caution. And I think the most concerning thing is that, and, and this is something people have trouble with their families and with work is, is the idea of setting boundaries, right? Yes. You know, yes. and Setting boundaries means saying no sometimes. It means removing yourself from the situation sometimes. It means, you know, being very clear about what you're willing and not willing to do. Um, And so I think it's important both, you know, within a... a within your family and within your workplace to feel empowered to set boundaries and know that the world will not crash and burn if you do so. 
Um, and, you know, as someone who grew up in a very tenuous family dynamic, and I know, Amanda, you can definitely relate to that. And you've spoken about <laughs> it openly in the pod. Like when you are a young person stepping into the work world for the first time and you're first offered this idea of like, oh, your work can be your family. It can be very attractive because if, if you didn't have such a great family situation growing up or you know, or it, it wasn't what you hoped it would be. You're like, okay, maybe this is my opportunity. You know, I'm spending time, I'm earning money. These people seem to value what I have to offer. You know, they're giving me all this responsibility. They, they're interested in what I have to say and what I'm doing. They want more from me. It's, it's the, you know, it's the attention, it's the praise and it can be very um, seductive and enticing. And then you get trapped so easily in this like work spiral. Uh, and I, I talk about my experience with that um, in the article, and, and I imagine you might have had similar experience yourself. I, as a person who comes from a very abusive, traumatic family background, I have found that actually that whole like we're a family thing in the workplace actually makes me, I don't know, like more tolerant of abuse. Like I don't see it as abuse until later. And it, uh, it's bad for me, you know, like, because when I hear family, my brain is like, oh, these are people who treat you like crap. But it's like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, that's what it is. That's what it is to be a family, you know? And I think it makes it impossible for me to draw boundaries. It also gives me really bad anxiety mm -hmm. uh, that I might not see in the moment. The job I had with a startup, where my my boss was the CEO and she was a bully. Like she would bully people about their clothes, just in general bully them, like just look for something. And she was very volatile emotionally. And this was so similar to my mom. And the atmosphere just reminded me so much of my home life. And of course, we're all a family. We're all sacrificing for this mission, which is like to make money, I guess. And I, my anxiety, I was starting to realize was exactly like the anxiety I'd feel as a kid when my mom was just, you know, going off on something she was angry about. Like it was also unpredictable. And what was predictable is that at some point someone would be angry and yelling. And that, that made it really, it, it took a toll on mm -hmm. me, you know? And I think that can be one of the flaws of the work is family approach. Absolutely. And that's the scary thing though, right? Is because if you come from these um, toxic family dynamics or these dysfunctional family dynamics, that feels normal. That is something you're used to coping with. You're used to maybe keeping the peace or like doing whatever mm -hmm. it takes to satisfy people who are frustrated or angry so that they won't express that anymore. And you fall into that pattern at work because you're good at it. You've been doing it since you were, you know, a child and it feels normal. That's what you're used to. So it can be, it can be quite bad for your mental health and, and just really, you know, um, dangerous. Because you don't, you don't spot it as mm -hmm. what it is, right? Um, I'm sure there are other people who can come into those situations who haven't had that kind of experience with family and be like, what kind of family is yeah. this? Maybe not, actually. Maybe everybody is like, but we're family. But it takes me back to something you said when we started talking about this work is family concept. And you talked about how family is is there to support mm -hmm. you. It should be. <laughs> it should be, right? Your job is not supporting you. I mean, yeah, they're giving you a paycheck, but they can cut that off at any Plus, moment. Plus, you earned that. You, you worked know, for that. They're not giving yeah, it to you. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, and I think that's another great thing to point out is that, yes, I'm sure growing up in your home, I know I had to, I had chores mm-hmm. and responsibilities, oh, yeah. but like my, my, uh, membership in the family, if you will, was not contingent upon me doing work. You know, I could be lazy and lay on the couch all day and I might get yelled at for it, but like I was still in the yep. family. And also my family never said, you know, we have been talking and we're just like not making the level of profit we've been wanting to make in this family. So we're going to cut you loose. Like, no, absolutely, yeah. They're not just going to give up on (laughs) you because you're having a bad week, a bad month, a bad year. Um, Yeah. Family is, is meant to be there for you through good times and bad, but your job will lay you off. And when you retire, if you're fortunate enough to retire, your job will cease to exist as a connection for you. You know, they're not going to, you know, visit you in your retirement and spend your golden years with you. It might be convenient for them to masquerade as family when things are good, but when the going gets tough, more often than not, your job is is going to, you know, cut its losses. It's not going to love you anymore, so to speak. Right, right. Whereas your family, theoretically would still love you. If they're a good family, Uh, right? And, you know, family dynamics are complex, right? I think part of the, part of the challenge of the situation is the nuance. Nothing is black and white. You know, it's not a good job or a bad job per se. It's not a good family or a bad family. It's, it's complicated and that's where the confusion can arise. But yeah, if, if a family should, should be there for you. And at its core, your family wants best for you. Your family wants you to take time off. Your family wants you to care for your health go to the mm-hmm. doctor, you know, take take the rest and rejuvenation that you need. Your job doesn't want that. Your job is going to be like, uh, I've noticed you've been going to a lot of doctor's appointments lately and I'm worried it's affecting your performance. Yeah. Your family would say, I've been noticed you've got, been going to a lot of doctor's appointments lately. Are you okay? Do you want to talk about mm-hmm. it? Very true. Very true. If it's a good family. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think like, I, I hate this, but it's something... I've been thinking about a lot, all the different ways that your company gets you to like so-called drink oh the food and get more work out of you, which leads to overwork mm-hmm. and burnout. Free labor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can you think of other sort of manipulations that employers use on people? I am always a little bit hesitant about team building exercises. Maybe it's just my, <laughs> oh my God, suspicious nature. But I'm like, <laughs> if you really are okay with me not actually doing any productive work for a couple hours to do these like personality tests, so then we can talk about how we're all oh, introverts. Those are the worst. Then like, can I just have that hour off instead? Like, I might be, you know, I would, I would really much prefer it. But I, you know, I wonder if the secret hope is like that we all become best friends and all we want to do is spend time together at work because I don't think that's going to happen or at least not for me. And I'm just always like, why? You know, I mean, you don't get to choose who you work with. I mean, granted, you don't necessarily always get to choose your family. But at the same (laughs) time, um, that doesn't mean you have to be best friends with someone to work well with them. You can be professional adults and do your Mm -hmm. work and then clock off at some point. And I'm always suspicious of team building exercises. I think there are are appropriate ways to do them. And then um, there are some ways that are just transparently, you know, silly. And (laughs) I just, I don't know. I'm like, what's the real goal here? Because 
I'm not making money for you right now while I'm, you know, doing this icebreaker. So what what's the end game here? I'm I'm always a little bit suspicious uh, of team building. Totally, like like mandatory fun. I know, oh, mandatory fun. Oh, hate it. I've worked two separate places. One was like when I was working retail, and another was a startup. The, the startup that gave me anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and in both mm-hmm. of those places, we were not allowed to hang out with one another outside of work at all, and it was very what? frowned upon. And we at the retail That's store, so which tale. I know the retail <laughs> store had easily 50 employees, probably 75. We were all young people. We all worked together all the time. We worked so mm-hmm. hard. We saw one another more than we saw anyone else. And if we were caught hanging out together, we could get written up. I had one oh manager, manager who was literally driving around trying to spot us hanging out at different locations. Um, that's, that's insane. Sad. That's so sad. It's like, we're your family and we want you to sacrifice everything for it, but don't hang out unless it's under our terms, right? And the startup was similar that way in that like we would be required to do this mandatory fun stuff where like literally all of us in leadership would get a lecture about how we had to make it as fun as possible and all of this stuff. And then we would do it and it would of course like be like forced fun, not fun. And if someone had too much fun at it, we would have to give them a talking to later about having too much fun. I mean, it's like, it's like you just can't win with these like, uh, like team building nonsense. Like either your team is going to be built by working side by side or it's not. I don't Mm -hmm. think having a kegger or a scavenger hunt or doing trust falls is going to change that. No. And I'm also always suspicious back to this mandatory fund that, I feel like these are also, okay, yeah, indulge my conspiracy theories. I feel like these are also always, like, secret data collecting missions. Like, let's see what we can get people to volunteer about themselves so that we can use that as collateral later, you know? I mean, that's interesting. Like, I yeah, I like what you're saying here. <laughs> like, heaven forbid that you want to ask for time off for something or, like, you yeah. have a need or an interest that doesn't relate to work that would detract from your ability to be present for work. I mean, you've just handed your employer knowledge about you that they could use to manipulate you in a way that would, you know, affect your job. I I, I don't know. I'm always hesitant to like give out that kind of information because I've I've seen it uh, used in ways that I think is a little bit unsavory or, or un you know un, mm-hmm, unscrupulous. Mm-hmm. So I, I really also think that there's ulterior motives to this like mandatory fun and I'm always like a little bit sus to be honest. <laughs> I I mean I hadn't thought of that but I love it. Oh and gosh I that's it. just my <laughs> level of paranoia for you. But seriously like I'm always cognizant of whatever I'm willing to share with my employer because there's just something in the back of my head like can I trust them? Could they use this against me later? You never know. Your employer is you not know. your family. They could turn on you. And in a state like Pennsylvania where you're an at will employee that essentially means, you know, you can be let go at any time for little to no reason. You know, it's at your employer's discretion. So why Mm -hmm. give them any reason? I I just feel like, you know, there's this lack of trust, you know, with with certain employers, if they're not willing to be transparent, but they expect you to share all this information about yourself. And and it's, it can be very scary and, and frustrating. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. And having worked on the leadership end, I've been in the meetings where it's like, let's set people up for failure. 
let's use things against them because we want to get rid of them, but we don't want to like fire them out. Yeah, absolutely. It's It's like, like, okay, let's create cause. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let's create the cause by promoting them when we know they're not ready so that they will fail and then we can let them go and they can't sue us. Uh, That's literally been conversations I've had to listen to. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely just like, oh yeah, well I heard this about blah, blah, blah. So I think that long-term we shouldn't have them around like that kind of like pre-planning for Mm -hmm. when they're going to end your employment based on something you said one time that they didn't like or didn't think was a cultural fit. Right. Oh yeah. Let's bring back that favorite, evaluating cultural fit. Don't get me started. It's gross. Well, okay. Let's talk about overworking Mm -hmm. because- like in most jobs, it's easy to overwork and burn yourself out. I mean, in fact, that's what your employer wants. They don't want you to get burned out, but they want you to be like running full throttle all the time. Because if you can do the work of two people or four people or six people, you save the company a lot of money. One of the best bosses I've ever had was actually at Modcloth. Her name's Emily. Hi, Emily. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said to me my first week there, she said, if you're here late more than every once in a while, then I want us to talk because either I'm giving you too much work or you don't have the right tools to get the work done. And for me, that was such a like, I don't know, a light bulb moment where I was like, this is the manager that I'm going to be. And I've been that manager at every one of my jobs wow. where like, I don't want the people who work for me on my team there later than me. And I'll do anything to ensure that that is the case. So I've had conversely worked with people who are like, um, the lower you are on the totem pole, the more hours you should be working to pay your dues. And I don't believe that. I believe that we're a team. I don't believe that we're a family, right? Mm -hmm. But I believe that we're a team working for a common goal. And in that regard, you want to look out for everyone on the team. Absolutely. Um, And that's just team and family are two different sets of relationships. Totally. And you want them to be cohesive, both of those sets of relationships, but they are different. And I love that. That's like the way a manager should be, in my opinion, you know, giving people the support they need. And that's how you reduce turnover. But I feel like a lot of employers are relying on this idea of high turnover, like, okay, well, we let all those people go. If you're still here, that means you want to be here. So you'll pick up the slack or you'll just quit, (sighs) you know, like they'll, they'll outsource that burden to the worker again. And it's like, okay, I have to work insanely hard to either keep my job or I have to quit and not even get the opportunity at unemployment benefits. So you're like between a rock and a hard place there. Oh, it's totally true. You feel trapped. You know, I actually was talking to someone else recently about how some companies, and I will tell you specifically in the fashion (laughs) industry for sure, want turnover. They want people to leave. They want people to leave because, you know, maybe they think they are getting too old and aren't cool. Uh, They don't want to pay them as much money Mm -hmm. as they have been. It's cheaper to bring in someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. It's just all about like the least expensive youngest person who's going to put in the most amount of time. And yeah, they technically can't let you go because you have been there for a while or because now you have a family and you have different priorities. They can't do that, but they'll push you out the door in other ways. And I've seen this consistently throughout my career. And I just feel like it's time for us to turn all this stuff upside down. Absolutely. Why do we continue to carry this on? 
We shouldn't. And I don't understand why employers think this is the best model. I don't know if you saw in the news, Amanda, but there's this, and, and I apologize if I mispronounce it, um, there's this ice cream parlor in Pittsburgh, Clavons, and they made national news recently because they were trying to hire new positions for the ice cream parlor, and they weren't getting a lot of response for the positions that they put out there. So they raised the um, hourly wage to starting at $15 an hour for these positions. And they got a thousand applications and they hired people. They haven't seen a difference in their bottom line and, you know, business is going incredibly well for them. And, and that's amazing. You know, they, they, they put an upfront investment like, Hey, we want to offer you this amount of money to work at our ice cream parlor, a locally, owned uh, small business and and people responded to that and you get you know you get a lot of good applicants when you are able to offer those kinds of resources to offer something that's actually desirable and shows investment in the employee or the potential employee and and just like you know it could it could be a win-win for everyone potentially and and I wish more employers saw it that way agreed agreed I think that we forget because we've been, I don't know, working in this system our, ent- our entire adult lives. We just assume this is just how it has to be and we're powerless to change it. But actually, they need us to do the work. You know, like we actually mm-hmm. have so much power. And I feel like if we band together as a society, as a generation of people and say, nope, we're done. We're done with this. Like, we're going to work this schedule. We're not going to answer slacks on the weekend. We're not going to read our email on the weekend. When we're homesick, we don't want to hear from any of you. <laughs> you know, uh, when if we find out that you're laying off people, even though you afford can afford to pay them just to like boost your profitability, we're going to boycott you. You know, like we need to change the system because there's no reason. It's like, listen, people used to use leeches and bloodletting to treat ailments, right? Like that was what doctors Mm -hmm. would come and do. We didn't keep doing that just because it had been happening for a long time. No, at some point someone said, oh, it seems like these are not really helping. Let's find something better. That's how we have to be about our relationships with our employers because there are way more of us than them. And we have mm-hmm. a lot of power there, even if it doesn't feel like it. I can tell you at all my jobs, I was like, I am so desperate for this job. I am so powerless. I must do whatever they say, no matter how miserable it makes me. And I can never set up boundaries because I am desperate for this job. Right. And Believing that submission is easier than the alternative. Yeah. We got to stop that. This is how yeah. this we perpetuate this. Do we want the next generation of people to have to work with all this stupid stuff? I feel like work has actually gotten worse in this century than better. <laughs> I agree in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, something that it's taken me a while to figure out, and I, I hope other people 
have figured this out too, is like, you can actually say no a lot more than you realize and, and you have power and you have rights and we need to make sure that we're educated about our rights as laborers. And we need to, to challenge our employers on that front and not just, you know, kowtow to every single demand. So the last thing I wanted to talk about is how hustle culture kind of fetishizes burnout. Like, you're not working if you're not burned out, right? Oh my gosh, so true, right? <laughs> is that a mug? Did someone make that into a mug yet? Oh, I'm sure they have. I'm sure it's for sale on Etsy right now. <laughs> I even feel like it pairs well, unfortunately, with this idea that um, you know there's unskilled labor out there. It's like, okay, well, if you're not burnt out, that means you're not in demand. You're not working hard. You don't have the skill to pay uh, the bills. You're not trying. Like being overworked is such a luxury because you have that opportunity. Um, forget that. I would much rather be able to achieve some sort of work-life balance. That seems like the true luxury, the true gem to me. There's so much wrapped up in this idea of like dream jobs and everyone should be chasing their dream. And so you're supposed to like pursue that dream at all costs. Mm -hmm. And the reality is like, I mean, something I would think about a lot working as a buyer is that I know that buyer is for so many people a dream job. They think working in fashion is like the ultimate most glamorous, exciting thing you could ever do. Mm-hmm. And there would be times where I would be just so exhausted, so frustrated, so burned out. And I would be, be like, well, you have someone's dream job. So I guess you need to keep, keep at it. And I feel like that's, I don't know. It's sort of like self-poisoning to look at it that way. Right. That it, it first off, if it's not your dream, I, you know, maybe consider doing something else, but also like, this idea that a job is supposed to be the dream is ridiculous too. Absolutely. And you should never define your dreams by someone else's, you know, there's yeah. that too. Yeah. And and sometimes you, you achieve that dream, that proverbial dream, and maybe you realize it's not for you and that's okay. You, you try something else then. You don't have to stick with it because it's, you know, glamorous or desirable, (laughs) you know, for all the other reasons that people project onto you. Like, yeah, it's not worth it. A job is a job and your life is your life and your life is more important than your job. Right. And let's remember who we're working so hard at these jobs for, not just for ourselves, but for the people we want to spend our lives with or, you know, the living creatures, whether it's, you know, your family, your spouse, your partner, your friends, your dog, your cat, your turtle, your pet, who like whatever, you know, like think about, you know, who you're coming home to after work, so to speak, even if it's just yourself, you know, show up for yourself, you know, after you clock out, you know, you deserve, you know, the best of you and you you don't have to just give it all away at work and then become a shell, you know, after hours. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like who are you working for? I think that's what we should be asking. That's a good question. Everybody should ask themselves right now. Yeah. You know, because I think, I think they're that gets you to the crux of the issue for so many people. Absolutely. And thinking about your goals and separating them from your employer's goals. Like, okay, you're working, you're slaving away at this job, you know, why, for how long? And and what are you trying to achieve? You know, like 
we need to start asking ourselves these important questions so we can confidently set boundaries and and save some of ourselves for, you know, the the five to nine. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I have been thinking a lot and I've talked about on the podcast this idea of like missions and like how companies will be like, mm, we're doing it for mm-hmm. this. This is what all the work is for. And I mean, I have fallen for that multiple oh, me times. Too. So hard. So hard. So well, hard. It's so sexy. You work in like the nonprofit <laughs> sector. So you're especially yeah. on a mission, but even. Oh, they'll get you with that. Uh, and then, We're not going to pay you well and you're going to work overtime, but it's for the good of humanity, for the planet. You know, you basically turn yourself into a martyr and uh, I hate that. Me too. I and, you know, it, it's so not worth it. Just because your company might have an excellent worthwhile mission doesn't mean you deserve, you know, poverty level wages yeah. or despicable, you know, like d- pathetic benefits. Like you deserve a, a good quality of life regardless of the work that you're doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think it is often used as a way to pay people less and give them less benefits. Oh, yeah. And I also think it is used as a way to get people to prioritize their work over themselves because you're mm-hmm. on this mission. Hey, you don't want to let the whole world down just because you wanted to go to the beach this weekend. Do you, Meg? I want you to think about it. You know, like that kind of thing. Uh. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Sacrifice is the name of the game. Yeah, yeah. I, right. I hate like that. You have to earn leisure time. Forget that. I mean, some jobs I've worked, it's like they haven't tried to make some like we're changing the world mission, but they definitely try to suck you into this idea of like, don't you want to help us make the most money ever? You know? And then you're like, yes, yes, I do. Which is even darker to think about. But like you, mm-hmm. you're like, oh my gosh. yeah, I guess I won't uh, celebrate my husband's birthday because like, if we don't meet our quarterly sales, like what's going to happen? Nothing. An asteroid isn't going to hit the planet. You know, like, oh my God, so true. A million birds aren't going to die or something. Like it, it is just what it is. And I think that companies sort of, loop us into these like scams i i think that mm-hmm. strip us of our lives like our individual identities and our individual relationships and that's why you get burned out you know like yeah, and once you're the there mind. i just feel like you can't get out of it it's so hard. And, and speaking of fashion, you know, given your experience, Amanda, I always think back to that scene in the devil wears Prada to bring it up, you know, when, um, you know, Miranda, she's, she's talking to, I I forget the character's name, whoever Anne Hathaway played. She's like, everyone wants to be us. What we do is so important. And I think they suck you in, in that way, you know, given the idea, like what we're doing is so important and so demand, like you have to be giving it your all. Like people are expecting the most from us. Like, are you really going to let them down? Like there are all these like grand expectations and what you're doing is more important than what other people are doing, you know, Mm -hmm. um, in the industry. And, and it's an easy way to, to get people to, to buy in and, you know, to, to feel that, you know, their time is, is, being spent in a worthwhile way because it's, you know, fulfilling this, this greater, something that's greater than them. Oh, I know this, that whole idea of self-importance in fashion. I personally would like us to destroy all copies of Devil Wears Prada (laughs) and do a surgical procedure on anyone who's ever seen that movie. So they forget it because I think 
it reinforced all that nonsense. And so like, if you work in the fashion industry, no one even needs to give you a fake mission that you're sacrificing yourself for. It's just fashion. Fashion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was so nice to talk to you, Meg. This was so fun. Yeah, this was great as per usual. I just want to say officially that I cannot wait until I get to hang out with Meg IRL so we can talk about 90 Day Fiance. I need to talk about it with someone other than Dustin, although he is a delightful partner for 90 Day Fiance viewing. And so, Meg, we're going to talk about it. (laughs) On a more serious note, I want to talk about at-will employment. That may not be a term you've heard before, but we mentioned it in our conversation. If you have a job or you have ever had a job, chances are very, very, very high that the terms of your employment were, quote, at will, unless you had a very clear contract with your employer that stated otherwise. And also, at will employment can apply to just about any kind of job, no matter the level in one's career, the salary, the title, or even the industry. And you're like, okay, Amanda, you're building up the hype here. What is at-will employment? Well, in every state except for Montana, at-will employment means that employers can fire their workers freely without a justifiable reason, as long as they can prove in court that the firing didn't violate anti-discrimination laws. This is a very scary position for workers who rely on their jobs not only to, you know, live, but also on the health insurance that comes with that job. Can we just, this is a different podcast episode clearly, but I wanna talk about this at some point. Can we just get Medicare for all happening now so we never have to worry about losing our access to healthcare just because of our job? But let's get back to something I said a moment ago. As long as they can prove in court that the firing didn't violate anti-discrimination laws. That is really the sticky point here for employers that you probably don't know exists. I know I didn't. Those laws, which were created to protect workers, yet few of us know about, and trust me, our employers definitely don't want us to know about, include discrimination based on race, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, national origin, religion, age, disability, genetic information, It also includes retaliation for protected activity related to the anti-discrimination laws, like as in if you filed a complaint with your state or federal government about discrimination you were you were experiencing on this job, you can't be then fired for the as retaliation for that. Um, You can't be fired for your use of the Family and Medical Leave Act. Um, You can't be fired for reporting unsafe working conditions to OSHA. I mean, on and on and on. You are so much more protected than you know, but most of us don't even know our rights as workers. It's not like we really talk about that in like the onboarding process, right? So your employer could lose in court if you felt that you were fired for discrimination. And in fact, that was true, right? Or, Or more accurately, the employer couldn't prove with beyond a reasonable doubt that it wasn't true 
because probably you were fired for discrimination or retaliation. Real talk. If you really got down to brass tacks, if you really boiled the story down to its essence, discrimination was happening there. This is why your employer utilizes write-ups and disciplinary plans to make losing your job seem, um, what's the term I'm looking for here? I guess more neutral, thanks to all that bureaucracy. It takes the personal element out of you losing your job, right? Like, well, sorry, we moved through these steps. You went through the write-ups. Now you're gone, right? It's nothing personal. I read a great column from the New Republic called At Will Employment is the Real Cancel Culture. I'll share it in the show notes. I loved it. Um, That's why I'm talking about it. This column argues that at will employment keeps workers living in a culture of fear of losing their jobs. I know I have worked in that culture, specifically black and non-black workers of color, women and LGBTQIA people. They are so afraid of losing their jobs and their health insurance due to retaliation for calling out illegal things that they see happening around them or to them. And let's be real here, plenty of people are being discriminated against in their workplaces. At-will employment ensures that workers are too frightened to speak out about what they're experiencing. There has been a small movement to shift laws toward just cause employment, which is basically not exactly the opposite of at-will, but means that there has to be a much more concrete and demonstrable reason for your termination. It was even part of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. I mean, many people, at least those that are aware of at-will employment, because a lot of us aren't, want it to end. When you actually ask people, if you explain to them what at-will employment is and ask them how they feel about it, they don't like it. A recent Data for Progress polling showed that 68% of respondents Do not think that bosses should be able to fire workers for any reason. So the sentiment is there that things must change. Just cause provisions are also a major element of union negotiations, which is another reason why so many employers are fighting unionization, including Amazon, Target, and tons of other smaller businesses and big retail chains. When someone asks me why someone would want to join an Amazon union when the warehouse already pays more than minimum wage and offers benefits, this is one thing I throw back at them, that Amazon can just technically up and fire someone at any time. And that's not a culture that encourages fairness. That's a culture in which your need to use the bathroom more often than someone else could get you fired, okay? How fair is that? Yesterday, I was talking to Susan Massey, you all know her around here, about all the times we should have consulted a labor lawyer, reported our employer to OSHA or the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Well, to be fair, Susan did report her employer to OSHA for some gross working conditions. And if you haven't read her blog post about that yet, I'll link it in the show notes. But what we did talk about is like, there are so many other times that we have experienced illegal things on the job. Do you remember, this was a lot of episodes ago when I talked about how I had written on my Facebook that at some point I would like to move to LA. And the next thing I know, I was being dragged into the manager's office and forced to write out a resignation letter. I mean, come on. That is not 
legal. And I think it was actually retaliation for a sexual harassment claim that I had filed earlier that year. That's my real feeling there. Anyway, there were so many times that we should have taken bigger action, but didn't because we were just tired, busy, overworked, or most importantly, frightened. I am not ashamed to say my name is Amanda McCarty, and I have been so desperate for every job I've had that I would do nothing to jeopardize it. Even if I knew it was wrong, even if it was making me miserable, I had to have that job. You know, it was what stood between me and homelessness. Susan said in our conversation, quote, I believe that that's by design. They keep you broke and exhausted so you can't fight back. I can't help but agree. I have always been desperate for my job and there was no room to take the risk of losing it, even though I saw something wrong was happening around me. And I certainly didn't have the time or energy to figure out who I was supposed to talk to about the issues I was observing. The company that employed me for the longest, actually, is infamous for not having an HR department. This is the same company where I was forced to write that resignation letter. Despite that company having thousands of employees all around the world, (laughs) yep, there was no one safely to talk to about what I was experiencing and other things I'd observed around me. And I didn't really know exactly what an employer could or could not do to me. I just I just felt so powerless. There was no way I could change anything that I had experienced or that I saw happening around me. It's just what it is. That's how I saw it. Work is just fundamentally unfair and abusive and we have to take it so we can keep having a home to live in, right? Well, guess what? We do have the power and there are resources out there for us. I'm going to share some different places you can report issues with your employer that don't involve getting in touch with your HR department if your job even has one. Technically, we are all protected from a lot of things and most of us don't know that. And our employers are so glad that we don't know our rights. I'm going to share a list of resources at closehorsepodcast.com, and I'll also include that link in the show notes. But also, we have to support and empower those around us to take action when their employers are engaging in illegal and unethical behavior. We have to be the conduit of information and resources for them. You, yes, you, can also be a list of links and resources, just like me. (laughs) Because for every person in our community who is learning all of the things we are discussing, there are infinitely more people who don't have access to that information. And knowledge is power, especially when we talk about our rights as workers. We must share our power. When you combine that with the power we have as workers and consumers, well, that's some major megatons of power. So let's not forget that. We know what is right, and we want a better, more equitable world. We will not stop that fight, and we will not be defeated. We will not give up, even when we're tired. I know, I know a lot of us are tired. We shall persist. And when we do feel defeated, exhausted, other members of our community will be there to prop us up, to lend us their strength 
and keep the fight going. I know that I will be there for you. I'll be there for you when you're exhausted. Hello, Haley here from the CloseHorse.World blog team, giving you a sneak peek of what is coming up on the blog this week. Free shipping is always a hot topic here at Close Horse. On Monday, we have an article about the true cost of free shipping by Bethany May. She takes on free shipping from a trucker's perspective. This essay is a fun read where I learned so much from a new perspective about how free shipping is never free. On Tuesday, we kick off Personal Style Month with a DIY post by Clothes Horse blog regular Hannah that teaches you how to upcycle your old clothing into a yoga bolster via knitting. This is such a cool idea, especially since workout out equipment can be so expensive. Be sure to check out that, as well as her past DIY posts. Wednesday, we have an article by Maggie about her style evolution as a fashion blogger. She will detail how she transformed her style blog from trying to sell you things and mimic other influencers to being a place where she can express herself and stay true to what she believes in. On Thursday, we have an exciting post by Rabbit Person titled Faking Vintage, but this post is about much more than that. She discusses her relationship with beauty, secondhand clothing, and how it shouldn't be all about wearing true vintage and gatekeeping, but instead be a way for all people to access quality clothing and learn how to make clothing last as long as possible to stay out of the landfill. We are all set on posts for Personal Style Month and are now looking for contributors for Body and Beauty Month. The deadline for submissions is coming up in a couple of weeks on Saturday, June 19th. So be sure to send it over to submissions at clotheshorse.world. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, as always, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. This is how we get more people to listen. This is how we get more people to learn about what we're working on and to learn the power that they have. So tell everyone. If you'd like to support my work, please consider becoming a patron. You can find more information at patreon.com slash podcast, or you can send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. And don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at Podcast. If you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. A listener recently reached out to me asking if we could move the group elsewhere to Slack or Discord for those who don't have a Facebook account or just don't want to engage with Facebook, which I definitely get. Uh, I'll be doing a poll on Instagram later this week to see how all of you are feeling about that. So keep an eye out. And don't forget to check out my other podcast, The Department. Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 